Today, I am both privileged and grateful to be celebrating the life and career of an actor who, for my money, is one of the finest this country has ever produced. For 17 years, he gave a consistently outstanding performance as one of the most iconic characters in television history. Ladies and gents worldwide, make some noise. We have a legend in the room. Eric Richard, welcome to the Bill Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I've had heaps of requests to do an interview for the podcast, but also heaps of praise and respect from all of your co-stars. One of whom, Ralph Brown, now living in New York, hmm. he shared what was for him a a great moment for him. He was in a cinema very recently watching the movie of the year, Dunkirk, and there you are on the big screen. He said it was a great, beautiful moment for him. How did that come along? How were you cast in, in Dunkirk? Well, my agent phoned me. He said that the casting director had said that this director is looking for an actor. There are no lines. It's in a film where there won't be a lot of lines, so you won't be the only one who's not doing a lot of talking but he doesn't want to use extras. Mm. I said, yeah, okay, it's a day out. I've got to trust the casting director that what he's saying about the director is true. And at this stage, I don't know what the film is, and I don't know who the director is. But I said, yeah, sure, it's a day out. I'll I'll do that, because that's what I do. I do acting. So uh, he said, well, the film's called Dunkirk. Now, at this stage, I didn't know they were making a film called Dunkirk, but naturally I knew what the subject would be. It would be Dunkirk. Not knowing how it was going to be shot and then he said and Christopher is the director oh so it just gets better and better and better so I say yes I go down and spend a wonderful day at Swanage uh, railway station where everything is in period the entire station is taken over and set to 1940 the train everything on the train everything on the platform hundreds of people in period costume tons of food of period just as if the troops were coming home and me being asked to deliver these two bottles of beer to Fiona and Harry. So we do that I don't know, for five or six hours I run up and down the platform giving them two pints of beer (laughs) and Christopher's very kind, very nice to work with wonderful mood on the set, very calm, very easy Christopher's wife and children were there as part of the set. So they, you know, they were playing extras, and just it had a fabulous atmosphere, fabulous. And that's it. That's the end of the the day out. And I get paid, of course, and the film comes out, and so we go to see it with my family. And lordy, lordy, there's Eric toward the end of the film in what is a very, very significant moment. And I talk in the third person now. Clearly, Christopher decided of all the stuff that he shot in that sequence during that day, he wanted that image to say the country forgives you and is on your side and you have, in fact, nothing to apologise for, which is a fantastic moment. And that's what acting is. It must be so nice. You've worked for decades Mm. to not only appear in the movie of the year, but what is being heralded as one of the greatest war movies of all time. Mm. How nice is that to add something like that to your resume? It's simple, really, because I go to work because I love my job. If I go all the way back to 1969 when I got my ticket, so I'm closing on 50 years now, I've never gone to work for money. Now, 
don't over-egg that. Clearly, I want to be paid. I'm a professional. Doctors get paid. Nurses get paid. Rubbish collectors get paid. Everyone should get paid for going to work. But what motivated me to always go to work is the work. And so to be however small a part of such an extraordinary film, it just underlines what I do it for. It would be the same if I'd have been a young man and had had such an essential part in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> what, what could you say? You'd spend the rest of your life saying, yeah, I'm grateful that I put my time in, and in my time, I did that role in that very significant piece of work. You've done a lot of film work recently. You just started in an Oscar-winning short film. Indeed, yes, exactly. <laughs> Which also, also, again, underlines my view of what I do for a living. I say with respect those kind of jobs, that's 50 quid and a cheese sandwich, because that's all the money that's going. But again, my agent said, these people, young people, are making this film. They've asked particularly for you to play this scene because you're the man they want. They want Eric Richard, if, if he could possibly be available, and would like to do it. How can you say no to that? It's what I do for a living. And lordy, lordy, the film gets an Oscar. <laughs> That's, for me, that is as significant in my work as is doing the bill or as is doing Dunkirk. Yeah. That's what I do. I want to be... It's an old cliche I put together many years ago in all the interviews I had to do when I was in the midst of the bill. I want a good part in a good play with good people in a good place. Yeah. And those two stories that we've referred to... Stutterer and Dunkirk fill that. Yeah. It ticked all those boxes, and goodness me, we get a result out of both of them. And it must be so satisfying working with the next generation of course. talent. And, of course. And where does your talent come from? Is it in the genes? Was there any acting genes in your family? Where did it all begin? Well, it's always difficult to talk about yourself in terms of talent. To use the word talent about yourself is difficult. I didn't become an actor until I was 29. I was 28 when I made the choice to do it, and I was 29 when I got my ticket. In those days, you had to have a union card. I'd left school at 15 with very little schooling. I, I missed most of my education, or certainly my secondary education. I wanted to do something with myself. It took me 15 years to find out what it was I wanted to do, and I decided what I wanted to do was to be an actor. So I just pursued that with vigour. There is no history in my family anywhere of acting or theatre. My mother was Irish. Some of her family were quite musical, but I'm not musical. So, again, I can't see where the genetic connection is. I do think I have an innate sense of space and time. So, as we're talking here now, and I knew this from the beginning of my career, I could see the audience's POV. So as we sit here, I can imagine the camera being in any part of this room and see the shot that the camera is making. And if you take that to a theatre space, I have that same innate feeling for it. And if that is talent, then it just came, came with this body. <laughs> yeah, it's an instinct, isn't it? Uh, I think so, yeah. 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 And I, I, that's why I'm nervous about the word talent. I'm fascinated by performance in all its levels. As you can see, I'm a motorcyclist. I've come here by motorcycle. One of my great passions is motorcycle racing. Another great passion is association football. 
both sports I watch very closely, and I'm fascinated about what makes Gerzel or Burkamp or Harry Kane. What did the gods touch them with that they didn't touch other people with? Because graft alone is not enough. I'd like to think I have grafted, and I'm sure Harry Kane has grafted, and Mother Ozil has grafted. But there's something else, and sometimes it might be balance. I always felt George Best, the man that his was, is he had this extraordinary balance, almost like a, a dancer. How do you get that? There's a wonderful photograph of him at something like less than 45 degrees to the ground, and yet still mobile, not rolling over or falling, but actually moving like a motorcycle racer. How does that happen? Because you didn't go to drama school, did you? No, I didn't. So, where does that fire come from from you? I mean, because, I mean, you're, I'll say it, you are a wonderful actor. Thank you. I love watching you work. Thank you very much. And to me, I love your instinct, your determination. A lot of the fiery characters you've played, as well Mm. as Bob Cryer, they have this determination. And so, Mm. how much determination did it take you to break into this? industry where you didn't have the traditional setup of going to drama school, you didn't have anyone in the family giving their experiences. How hard was it to break in and start a television career, a stage career? Well, again, being asked this question, I, I, I came up with an answer many, many years ago. In 1968, I was married, we had a son, within 18 months we were to have had a daughter, so we, I was in every way a rounded, middle-class, working man. Family, mortgage, all of those things. But it wasn't sufficient. And I was running an import company, and our bookkeeper, who was a Greek Cypriot called George Kafkaris, and it's relevant to his his race, he belonged to a Greek drama group in Camden Town that did classic and modern Greek drama and also made Greek films, and he had had quite a reasonable, if you like, semi-professional career. And I came home to my wife and said, you know what, I could do that, I could do acting. In the same way, if George had played badminton in his spare time and said, why don't you do badminton? He was kind of saying, why don't you do acting? So I thought, yeah, I'll do acting. And I went and joined an amateur company in South London, And in very short time, because at that time the world of amateur theatre was the land of white middle-class women, because they had the time while the men were off to work, and there were very few men doing it. So if you were a man and you could stand and walk and talk, they'd put you on stage very quickly. And as I sit here opposite you, Oliver, I can still remember that first time when I stepped on stage with an actress with a live audience and having to perform and the only way I can describe it is to say that I knew not, oh this is good or this is interesting, I knew this is where I belonged and the only parallel I have to that is if you go back to when I was 19 and I was skint and I couldn't afford a car and I didn't like going on buses, I bought myself a motor scooter to go to work on. And as soon as I got to understand it, which was in a couple of weeks, I knew that's where I belonged. Now, those are two very kind of animal-like instincts, and I don't know where they come from. But having got the acting thing, this is where I belong, then the next call was 
then I'm going to do this as a job. I don't know how to do it. I've got more idea of how to go to the moon. If I'm going to go, and I literally mean that, if I want to go to the moon, then I must go back to school, I must study, I must get my A-levels, I must get a degree, I must join the RAF, I must learn to fly, and eventually there is a route, but there is no route to being an actor. You can train as much as you like, you can go to RADA, you can work with all the best directors in the world, but if you can't act, you can't act. And even if you can act, you ain't necessarily going to get a job. But I didn't know what the alternative to doing it was. My closest friend, who still is my closest friend, said, yes, but what if this doesn't work? And my answer to him was, I don't know, because I can't imagine it not working. My imagination, which is quite good, just could not see this not working. Wow, a lot of belief. I'm loving it. Yes, thank you. Wonderful. And... What are your memories of those early days of treading the boards and, and trying to break into television? Actors nowadays, it's so easy. You can make your own showreel on your iPad. You know, you can do a short film. You make the technologies there. It's a lot harder back then, presumably. It, it was and it wasn't. There were less of us, I think, in percentage terms. I think there were more young people coming into the business than there were in my time. Whether a 28, 29-year-old man could do what I did, just say, oh, I'm going to give this up and become an actor... I don't know whether that would happen. I suppose if you took up modelling, you might be, quote, discovered. But whether you could just hustle your way in, I don't know. Uh, The small-scale theatres, the pub theatres, they were beginning to come on stream at the same time that I was coming in. I think, like your very kind remarks about what you use the word talent, is I think I must have been expressing something to the people I was meeting that in my very rough, unactor-like way, they must have been seeing an energy that's in me, mm. which is what works when I'm acting, because that same energy creates a focus, which is what people find attractive to look at. And I think that might have been the case, that there was this bloke, because in those days you wrote letters, you wrote letters to all the television companies, you wrote them to all the rep companies, anyone who was likely to give you a job, you wrote them a letter. And mostly they didn't bother. But quite a few of them did. Now, there might have been something in the letter that said, you know, however I put it, but I'm a 28, 29-year-old man who's never acted, but I'd like to have a go. Can I have a go, please? And perhaps people thought, this is slightly balmy. Let's meet him. Because we are an imaginative industry. So people thought, yeah, let's meet him. And eventually, Nick Barter, who was then running the Ipswich Tower Theatre, Rather than invite me to the open auditions, which would be ha- would happen in the summer, everyone would get invited and you'd, you'd do a mass auditions, and then they would create their company for the season. He didn't. He asked me if I'd like to go down to Ipswich and meet him. So I jumped on my motorcycle, I rode down to Ipswich, didn't know what I was doing. We spent 20 minutes or so in his office discussing how did I get here, And then he said, would you like to come downstairs and do your modern and your Shakespeare? And I said, yeah, sure. Then he said, would you like to improvise? And now this comes back to the same man, is that I'd never improvised in my life. I mean, I knew what the word meant, but I just said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So he got another actor out, and we improvised. (laughs) And from that, I got my ticket. I got my first job. So there must be something within it in the way that 
someone will see a young footballer playing football and say he's got it and not be quite sure what it is he's got, but they can see that he's got it. And so maybe I was expressing something, and I really say maybe, otherwise it's arrogant for me to say, oh yes, I know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just pushing forward, and whatever way I was pushing forward must have been attractive to those people that were watching it. Oh, very much so. And do you remember, you know, working on television the first time you had early roles on the Wednesday play, me a needing line, and... I remember the very first thing I did, which was a half-hour, I think they called it 30-minute drama, BBC, and I had to play a gatekeeper who just put his head round the gate. Now, again, I just would have put my head round the gate like that and said, what do you want, or whatever the line was, and that was the beginning and the end of it. But there must have been a clarity in the way that I was doing it, that future people who hired me said, oh, yes, let's go with that. If I jump forward and my career is now well underway and I'm establishing a reputation in the business and I meet Mike Lee. Everyone wants to meet Mike In fact, we still want to meet Mike Lee because he is what he is. He's one of the giants of British theatre and filmmaking. So he asked to see me and we'd never met before, but of course we knew each other, so it wasn't a surprise that he'd asked me in. And his process was to say I want you to create a character I'll leave you for half an hour and come back and when he came back the character I created did nothing that was my choice that he did nothing because it was based on someone I knew who was a very lonely and sad person and he just watched television most of his life and so I did that and subsequently got a job with Mike Lee so even doing nothing I'm not doing nothing. Absolutely. There's something about an energy that I have that must be attractive to the eye. Yeah, oh yes, it's uh, Stan in Home Sweet Home. Yes, like, absolutely. I saw yeah. it again very yeah. recently. And the two things are linked, that very first face round the, the gate and then you know jump forward to you know, a highlight of working with Mike. Yeah, yeah. Before then, you're travelling to Tokyo with Shogun. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That scene where you're all down, that horrible hit, and yeah. it's the short straw scene, and it's yes. still now intense and, and mm. unsettling and unnerving to watch. Mm. You know, mm. television back then, I think, just went to a different level. In the like, very early 80s, you had a more dangerous attacking style of filmmaking as well. I think so, I and mean, I think I might be wrong, you could check this, but I believe that Shogun was the first mega money miniseries. And my memory is that at the time, was it Paramount? That's right. It was Paramount. I think they invested something like $30 million, which in 1979, yeah. and therefore they must have been putting that together, say, 77, 78, to raise $30 million on a television series was pushing the edge. You wouldn't do that lightheartedly, and so that would be in the energy of shooting it as well. Yeah two things go together, as we know, particularly for television, is it gets lazy, it gets flabby, mm. because that initial burns. How often do we see something and say, oh, it wasn't like the first series? Yeah. And so I think you're right about Shogun and that period of television. Yeah. It was pushing on. And it won Emmys and mm. Golden Globes, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a, still a standout piece. What was yeah. it like, actually, suddenly you're working in Tokyo, and young actor... Because you hadn't been 
very quick rise in your career. It's very significant. In 1976, I joined a company called Payne's Plough. And this was in the days when we had small-scale touring theatre in this country, big time. People like Hull Truck, 784, Joint Stock, Monstrous Regiment, uh, Gate Sweatshop, Payne's Plough. And we were quite an embryonic company. We'd only just got going. And I was on the road with Payne's Plough for two years. Harriet Walter came out of that club. Joe Marcel came out of that. Stephen Boxer came out of that. John Adams came out of all out this one tiny little company. Is it coincidental that Eric Richard came out of the same company? Because on the road, in this space that we're sat in here, I've played in spaces only about three or four times bigger than this, and at the same time played the National Theatre with the same production. You've got to know how to do that, and it's back to what I was saying earlier about knowing where the camera is or knowing where the audience is. So by the time I left Payne's Plough, I was probably in a very good place as an actor in, in having honed my craft. There was still more to be done, still, and I still believe you learn every day. But I was in a good place. I was really sharp. From there, I went to Sheffield and worked with David Leland, and then subsequently worked with David later, of course, on Made in Britain. Yes. But this was in the theatre in Sheffield, and came down from Sheffield with a play, the four actors that were in the play. It was called Egypt by Ron Hutchinson. And we, the actors, brought it down to the Bush Theatre. While we were in the Bush Theatre, I got a needing line because the director came to see the play, to see one of his mates in the play, and offered me that, and that was a very significant change. And I think that same energy I was talking about from the beginning that people responding to, I think on the screen, people were responding in the same way. And sure enough, then jobs didn't tumble, but they started to come in a more regular pattern. You reference Made in Britain. I mean, I studied that at school. I mean, it still is an extremely powerful piece of television. A dynamic piece of television. Yeah. Mm. And Tim Roth just starting on... Yeah, like, what a start. Yeah. Yes. yeah, but you you hold your own with him. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, yes. You yes. Know, yes it's, it's yeah. too, mm-hmm. When he turns up at your house, your family all in bed, and mm-hmm. I mean, it's fantastic exciting piece of drama you know mm-hmm. what was it like for you to actually work on that and film on that and, and that's not long after Home Sweet Home either so suddenly no. presumably your profile started changing the business as well absolutely you know? yeah. yeah it was wonderful to work with David because I'd enjoyed working with David immensely I'd done uh, Egypt with him and then in happier days Sheffield Crucible gave him the studio that in in the winter of 78 and he did three new plays his own and Victoria Wood's first play so imagine working with Victoria Wood yeah I mean yeah and we brought that to London as well so I was now in a place that when Made in Britain came along I knew I could do it Mm. it would be like yeah here I am I'm playing for a championship side and now West Ham come in for me I think, yeah, I can do premiership football. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have used that analogy at the time, and you only analyse yourself when you find yourself in a position like this. But that's what it was. I had got to the position where I was, th- knowing, not thinking, 
I was knowing that I could do it. Yeah, because in like a year's period, you worked with John Ford and Mitch. Yeah. You worked with Ronnie Parker and David Jason mm. in Open the last episode of Open Hours. You did a Victoria Wood on TV. Yeah. So, like, these are extremely well known stars, mm. and you're having one on one scenes with them. Well, I think John Thor would be an example. No one can do anything but feel such a wonderful joy about John and, and being in his presence and what a fine actor he was. And I didn't know him because we only ever spent that one day together, but everything one heard about him, he was a terrific bloke. Well, I came onto the set and John came toward me and congratulated me for Home Sweet Home. Oh, wow. wow. It is oh well. Yeah. It is oh well. Yeah. And that's a very personal... Mano mano, actor to actor, no lovey darling stuff, just a bloke coming over and saying, I saw you in that, I thought you were terrific. Yeah. That didn't make, it didn't make my head swell or my heart beat faster, but it was a, it's, a, it's an example, not is the example, but it is an example of how when you then get to Made in Britain, and then you get to the bill, yes, I can do this. That, yeah. yeah, that's what I do. And I know how to do it. I know how to go about it. The very first day of the bill, first time I'd done a series, I've got 12 episodes, I've read this character, wonderful character, but I don't jump in there thinking, well, I can do this, I've cracked this. No, not, no, not at all. I know I can do it, but I've not done this before, so let's find out how to do this. And the very first shot, I said to myself, just stay still, not fall asleep, but stay in character, stay still, don't do things that you're going to have to follow. Be sure about what it is you're doing. So even at that stage, you're learning, even though you feel secure that in going into what you're doing next. It's, it's uncanny. I will come back to that towards the end. That's mm. your observation there. And you got the bill because of a play you were doing with John Salthouse? That's right. Saturday? Yeah. So well, it, again, that, uh, that would place Eric Richard in the business. Certainly people, the general public, didn't know me from a hole in the ground because they only know you if you're in their front room three times a week. You know, they get confused. If, well, where did you come from? Well, the case was, by the time we got to... It was the spring of 84. We had done this little four-hander, small touring with Payne's Play again, ironically, although not connected to the one I was with. And uh, it had been a little hit. We'd come into the Hampstead New End. It had been a success there, so we went to the Royal Court. We didn't know it, but while we were at the Royal Court, they were beginning to cast the bill, and they were recasting two central characters. They'd done the pilot, but weren't going to be in it. And Pat O'Connell, who I knew... John would have known Pat, everyone would have known Pat at the time. She made it clear, we didn't know this either, but to the people that were making the bill, these are a couple of blokes that you want to look at. I knew where Eric Richard was in the industry, and the industry knew where he was as well. So that was almost the ideal timing. Doesn't mean I would have got the job, but it was right that I was in the frame. Yeah, and... When you first discovered about the role, I mean, can you remember the first time you heard the name Bob Cryer and, and how much of a, a Bible did that character have? How much were you allowed 
to instinctively bring you into that part? I can give one very significant example because I think it does sum up Bob Cryer. I'm playing a police sergeant. That's all I know, really. I'm playing a police sergeant, and he's a central character. I know those two things. So in the same way that I've always done my job, I go about researching what does it mean to be... I mean, we all have a, a supposition of what a policeman is, but I don't do that. I go away and, and do the work. So I asked to be put into a police station with a police sergeant, went out on the streets with them, did all the research, there. And one of the first decisions I made was Sergeant Cryer would never have his sleeves rolled down. Always he would have short sleeves or his sleeves would be rolled up because it was literal and also a metaphor that he was always up to his elbows in whatever needed to be done. So there was a muscularity and a working practice, working in the physical sense about this man, which also meant that intellectually and spiritually he was approaching the job in that way. And I think that is the key factor to what Cryer was. And how similar was the Eric Richard in 1984 to, to Bob Cryer? What were the qualities that you both shared, do you think? I never thought we had much in common. The obvious are we have in common, physicality, voice, I'm a working-class South Londoner, I placed him as a working-class East Ender. So we have that in common, we're of an age. I think when I look back on it, rather than when I was in the midst of it, that thing that we talked about earlier, about Eric Richard's focus, and how that could be attractive to people, I think that focus made Sergeant Cryer very powerful without being noisy. So just by the way he spoke to other characters, whether they were good people or bad people, they were assured. So if you were a bad person, you were going to get it. Don't hesitate to think you are going to get it. If you're a victim, you are going to be cared for because there's a, a honesty about prior. Whether there's an honesty about Eric Richard, I don't know, but that energy as an actor was what suited that character so well. And so those two things would be similar, I guess, and overlap. When you think back to making that, that first series, what feelings does that bring back for you now, and how strong are those memories of that, those early episodes? Well, we refer to the late 70s and when you spoke of Shogun and how television was moving at that time. Well, the bill moved things in 1984. Not in 83 when they did the pilot, because that was different. But when we went to 84, we were a very self-contained little unit. We were made by Thames Television, but we weren't attached to Thames. We had our location in the East End in Wapping. We were a small group of actors, a small company of actors. And it was like being in a small-scale theatre. And, and we used to tease each other about it. It was like being on the road. It was like we were all working together. And we were encouraged to do that. Peter Grigine, who was the major director at the time, and Michael Chapman, who was the producer, they wanted a sense of drama documentary. So it is interesting that in the two major characters, Cryer and John Salthouse's character, Galloway, is that they chose actors who had some reputation for improvisation. Because I'd also worked with Mike Bradwell. 
we did a lot of improvisation for those two years that I was with Payne's Plough. So it's interesting that they chose those kind of actors and we were allowed that freedom. That didn't mean we could improvise the language, but we could certainly think on our feet in the way that it was to be shot. And the directors would give us that freedom. So it wasn't as prescriptive as filmmaking is now, where I want you to move your hand just slightly to the left. Thank you. No, no, that's too far. Can you come back a bit? A little bit more? Thank you. Hold, that's, right, hold that. That's it. That's the scene. We weren't doing that. Ours was much more fluid. There was a shot at uh, Whitechapel Market opposite the London Hospital where they put a camera, which was really unusual, put it up at uh, Chris Hodson, put the camera up on top of the van and had Colin and myself walk the length of the market in dialogue. And in the middle of that dialogue, having to deal with... They were extras, but we still had to deal with them, so that wasn't scripted. So Colin and I are talking, and I'm nodding to people and saying, all right, Charlie? That was the kind of energy of what we were doing, and it gave an energy to the production, of course. I mean, it must have been such an exciting time in your life. I mean, you, yes, it's an ensemble cast, but you and John are the leading men. It's, it's yeah. you both at the end of the title sequence. Mm. And suddenly you're in command of a unit, both as a character but also as a leading yeah. man. And, mm. and how did that make you feel? I mean, by this point you must have thought it's all paid off. Uh, no, I didn't actually. No, it's, it's really odd. I obviously look back and think, well, that was a, that was a purple patch because it was terrific work and I was reasonably well paid for it. So, of course, its influence on my life has been immense. But I never felt that I was a leading man. I'd like to think that I'm much more of a team player. Michael Chapman said of... We were discussing something entirely different. And he said, well, yes, you're first among equals. And I think if I was to see myself in a premier position, it would be first among equals. I think everyone I was working with was at the same level as me. The nature of the character and the nature of, of the part meant that Cryer just had that slightly forward position. Yeah. But I never saw myself as a leading man. When the series completed the 12 episodes and then it's coming back, is it fair to say that the bill, I think it started getting in the top 20 at, towards the end of the second series, like in terms of the viewing figures, and, and then later, it, more people watched the bill than watched the EastEnders? Mm. You know. I never followed the charts in that sense, and, and I wasn't a great one for numbers, but I do remember us coming into work one day, and someone said, do you know 18 million people watched us last night? And you did think, my goodness, because in those days, 18 million, yeah. well now it's, it's even more incredible because people, unless it's the cup final or yeah. another royal member getting married, yeah. I mean, we don't get those numbers, do we? And at the time, I think there were about 22 million people in Australia, and I thought, my goodness, that's all of Australia and New Zealand have watched us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is an incredible thing. You almost can't deal with it. If you're in a small room, there's an audience of 100 people, you get it. You're in a big stage and there's a thousand people, you get it. Once you start saying 18 million people are looking at you, yeah. it's beyond belief. And do you remember the first time you were recognised because of the bill or, or, or a change suddenly where 
going out in public, and you must have been recognised all over the place. There, there was a funny first story. It was the day after the series was aired for the first time, so it was aired on the Tuesday night. Wednesday went to work. John and I arrived on set, on location somewhere, and I got out of the car first. And as I got out of the car, this woman went into a flat. And that was the very first time. But there's a nice sort of side story to it. She went into a flat and said, can I have your autograph? Can I have your autograph? And I said, sure. So she rummaged in her handbag and came out with a packet of Rizla, because <laughs> that was the only paper she had. And she tore the, the leaf, the top, off the uh, envelope and got me to sign this little scribble of paper. So I gave it back to her, looked up and saw John behind me, and now she'd run out and paid for it. <laughs> and we kind of knew that it would never be the same. No. Life would never be the same after that. And that's the first time for both of us that it had happened. Although, a lovely story of what is fame, what is being known, is I had done Home Sweet Home. I was with my eldest son and we'd gone up to Donington Park to watch some motorcycle racing and I was dressed much as I am today in motorcycle clothes and we were walking along by the uh, side of the track and there were some young, and they were young men, it's relevant, they were sat up on top of a truck watching the racing and one of the characters, Sheila Kelly's character in Home Sweet Home, said to Stan, wish I had a watch. Wish I had a watch. And this was the woman that he'd met in the laundromat, taken back and slept with, and she was leaving and said, I wish I had a watch. These men started to quote that line at me. Wow. That's extraordinary. That was extraordinary. So when we come to the lady tearing the back off the Rizzler packet, <laughs> I was, in a sense, prepared for it. It wasn't a shock or a surprise. Mm. The only surprise is that it happened so quickly. Yeah. Because that was quite literally the first time I'd been on the pavement as the actor playing Sergeant Pryor. Yeah. Because it'd been on the television the night before. I'd have got up the next morning, got on my motorbike, ridden to the studio, got changed, got in a car, taken to location, got out and stepped onto the streets. And as I stepped onto the street, bang, it wow. happened. And it all began. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that you'd made that decision on how you were going to play before you played it because for me obviously that is partly to do with the writing but Bob Cryer the man at the end is also the same man as at the beginning you were always so consistent mm. Mm. there are moments where you are outstanding and, and the first for me is in series two so that's called Hostage Ashley oh, Gunstock's been mm. guns down mm. Mm. and you find yourself trying to get this man to pop his mm. gun down and then mm. obviously the scene unfolds they break in and they shoot him and, and your response to that is just a, a sublime piece of acting thank you what I love about you and Trudy we were talking about you and she came up with the word and it was strength mm. and Eric is so strong and it's his strength in scenes mm. and like I've got shivers just remembering that moment and, and, and you know because you don't hold back that's what mm. I love Mm. But it, there's a difference, isn't there, of, of not holding back and not going over the top. Mm. It's, that's a skill. Not mm. every actor gets it. No. It's still got that 
oh, it's a release of emotion mm. and mm. yeah, it's a stunning mm. bit of work, you know. Thank you. Thank I mean, you very much. What's it like? I'm not an actor. I always dreamt about being one as a kid. It didn't happen. But when you have those moments of letting the emotion out, the adrenaline must be pumping. What's it like to actually be in that moment? I don't know if you can, if I can find comparisons, but when the director says cut on a scene like that, and you know you've done it, you equally know when you haven't done it. But when you know you've done it there is almost a physical release. There, there is a physicality within you. It's, all, it's almost as if your muscles, your muscularity, is taking your spirit and holding it tight. And that tension is what the audience are hearing and seeing, and bless Trudy for using that word of strength. And then when they say cut, the muscles relax and that energy and spirit kind of goes and comes away from you. That's the only way I can describe it, really. And it may not be the same for all actors, I can only clearly, because it's such a personal thing, I can describe my own feeling. I think it's also not, not just for Eric, but for actors in general, which is why sometimes it can be very hard for us to come down which is why some actors sadly get into all kinds of predicaments because that same energy is running when you're on stage, but you can be on stage for two and a half hours. So you can imagine when you release that after two and a half hours, uh, I'm reading about McKellen playing Lear at the moment. I mean, what what must he be like? I mean, he's, he's my age, Ian, and when he comes off after Lear, phew, You've got to find a way to deal with that. And sadly, for some people, when they're younger, they don't find that easy. Mm-hmm. And that's why we do hear of people getting lost. And is that what motorbikes and, and flying as well? You're, you're a pilot as well. I, I no longer fly. Flying was um, something I just wanted to achieve. Motorcycling is different. Although I'd long, long ago realised that I'm defined as two things. Always, everything I say is nothing to do with family. Family is a different issue, of course. But Eric Richard is defined by being an actor and being a motorcyclist. And they do run parallel. They run absolutely side by side. If I were to remove either of those from me, I don't know what I'd do with myself. They are that significant to me. And when I've analysed that, I've thought, well, it is interesting because... If you fall off a motorcycle, it hurts. And I have fallen off motorcycles, of course, and it does hurt. Thankfully, I've only fallen off one or two performances, and that is killing. That is much, much more painful than falling off a motorbike. And there's something about the thing of... And it's not being on the edge, because that always presumes that you're on a precipice and you're about to fall. It's not that but that need to stay on top of your game in order to keep the motorcycle going forward or the performance going forward, I think do run parallel for me. Again, it doesn't mean it is for everybody, but for this bloke it is. Yeah, yeah. My huge thanks to the Counting House pub in Bank, You can probably tell from a sheer glee in my voice how excited I was to meet Eric and celebrate his career. 
Well, in part two, we get stuck into some Sun Hill gold dust, plenty of behind-the-scenes anecdotes to come, and we kick off with Eric's memories of working with fellow legend Mr. John Salthouse. There is quite a clear reappreciation of John Salthouse's work mm-hmm. and the chemistry that you both shared together in those early episodes. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you two working together and sharing those early, very special golden days of the bill? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful because we'd wor- obviously we'd worked together on uh, Red Saturday and we knew of each other without knowing each other and we got on famously and when you're on the road with a small scale company you need to get on otherwise it can be bloody uh, and it wasn't we got on famously it was a lovely group of actors but he and I got on particularly well so when the job came up it was almost made in heaven I mean we were, we were ideal partners to work together and I had nothing, nothing but good memories of working with him 